This is Mental Work, the podcast unpacking the challenges faced by early career psychologists. And I'm your host, Dr. Brunwyn Milkins. Hey, mental workers. Have you asked yourself the question, can I diagnose? How do I diagnose? What do I need to do? If you've asked yourself any of these questions, then this is the episode for you because today, along with my guest, we are going to unpack this question and it will lead us down a pathway where we're talking about assessment and how to go about assessment, how to tell people a diagnosis, and what are some of the ways that we can learn to be competent in assessments. And today's guest is Nicole Young. Hi, Nicole. Hi. Nicole is an educational and developmental psychologist. She's working at a school with young people, and I am so delighted to have you here, Nicole. Thank you. It's, I'm happy to be here. Fantastic. So, Nicole, this was an episode that we collaborated on together. You came to me and you're like, I think I want to do this episode, and I was like, great. And so I really just want to share with listeners first your experience with this topic. How come you came to us and you were like, you know, I think the listeners need to know about diagnosis? I guess it's an area that I'm passionate about or that I've found passion in through my work as a psychologist. But I also was reflecting back on my time when I was starting out through my master's program and doing placement as a provisional psych and then as an early career psych. And I was working in a space that, you know, required me to do some assessment and provide some diagnosis and just thinking about the feelings and the fears that I had at that point in time and assuming that lots of the listeners would be feeling the same things. And I know, you know, that's been reflected in some of the early career psychs that I have been working with um, and had on placement with me. And so I think it's relevant uh, and something that we should be talking about. I agree because when you think about it, it's like you're a provisional psych, you say fresh out of uni or you're still in uni and then you're almost placed into this position of power where you are the one wielding the diagnosis and, and this could change somebody's life and it's quite scary, hey? Absolutely, it's intimidating and still sometimes, you know, I think about it. If I overthink about it too yeah. much, it feels intimidating and, you know, it, for for some of us, it feels like we're not doctors and we don't have that kind of expertise or power, but we do. And it's really important. Yeah. It's kind of like, okay, so you're saying I just open up this book, the DSM-5, and then I look at these symptoms and okay, they've got five and now you've got depression. Okay. And it can feel quite scary. Like what are the implications of that? Yeah. And I think there's so much mixed information out there too. You know, there's people that are pro assessment and diagnosis and there's people that are quite anti it as well socially and there's a bit of stigma associated with some diagnoses or you know preconceived stigma by psychologists and society that it can feel scary. Do you feel that diagnosis falls within a medical model of conceptualizing people or, or do you see it a bit differently? I think fundamentally it does and so even when I think about it there are some diagnoses that I feel more comfortable providing than others you know I think that most of us as people will experience anxiety at some point in time. And we know that fundamentally um, through the way our brains work. But having an episode of anxiety doesn't mean that you have anxiety. But at what point does it mean that you have anxiety? And is that useful for some people? So I think there are some diagnoses that, you know, if the client is going to feel validated by it, then sure, let's let's give them a diagnosis of anxiety. Um, but there are others that I feel like can actually 
help understand a young person, uh, particularly my role as a school psych. So things like cognitive assessment or learning assessments, you know, they help to understand how this person's learning, what their strengths are, what their challenges are. And it can be quite medical, but you can also take it as a holistic kind of approach and try to be, you know, neuroaffirming or bring in lots of different information about early experiences, trauma, all of those things are really important in understanding a young person and how they function. And that can be weaved into any sort of assessment that you're doing or reports. And then the most important part of assessment and diagnosis really is the recommendations and what do we do to support this young person. And so gathering really useful, detailed information can help to tailor those recommendations. So what I'm hearing is lots of benefits from doing assessments. So there is on one side of the scale, people who are like, no, diagnosis puts people in a box and then that confines them to that for the rest of their lives. And then at the other side of the scale, what I'm hearing for you is that there's lots of benefits that young people can find this validating, that it can help explain their experiences and that we can give them recommendations to help make their lives easier. Is that right or am I going too far? (laughs) No, absolutely. And I think, you know, I can understand where the people are coming from that say, you know, that's putting them in a box and how dare we define someone just by a a label or a title. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, I guess I am pro-diagnosis and pro-assessment because I can see the benefits Um, in myself, in my friends and family, but most importantly, in the people that I've worked with. Yeah. So maybe let's just unpack the benefits a bit more. Um, Like, for example, let's say somebody is experiencing, well, they think they might be autistic, a young person. Let's say they're like 12 years old and it's come to their parents' attention as they've made their transition from primary school to high school that they might be having some challenges and these might be reflective of autism. Um, Maybe you could just share with us what would be the benefits of diagnosing this person as autistic? Yeah, so that young person has probably come to that realisation because they're experiencing some challenges in a neurotypical world that may not be supporting them. So whether that is socially or, you know, the classroom is really overstimulating from a sensory perspective or they're struggling to keep up or, you know, they're getting in trouble because they're stimming or fidgeting or, you know, whatever it is. So there's probably some sort of challenge and they might've done some Googling as we all have um, and come to you. And I think that the benefit for that young person can be first and foremost, A, there's a reason and it's not me. It's not that I just can't do something or I'm stupid or I'm different. And I think for teachers, and parents to it can give them some understanding. Often young people with neurodiverse presentations can be thought to be behaviourally challenging or like they're choosing to act in a certain way or they should have got it by now. And I think that's the reality from lots of teachers in that education setting. And having a diagnosis can actually change that kind of perception of a young person. So people are a bit more understanding. They can set up the environment to best suit them. So what I'm hearing from you is that a young person might actually already be coming to you being like, I'm experiencing some challenges. I think I might be broken. Maybe there's something wrong with me. So maybe they've got all these negative thoughts about themselves and judgments. And by giving them a diagnosis, it's almost like we're saying, no, you're not broken. There's nothing wrong with you. Here's you. And here's how we can help you to thrive in this world, which is really set up for uh, people who are not neurodivergent. Absolutely. It's 
that's a really great explanation. I think it's that you're not broken and actually this is how your brain works and whether it's autism or ADHD or just poor working memory or, you know, something that actually teaching that young person that this is your strengths, these are your challenges, this is what we need to do to support you can be really empowering. Yeah, and I'm I'm just curious, Nicole, because I reckon a lot of our listeners would be thinking, oh, crap, but some people, they react really negatively to diagnoses. Maybe they will be angry at me if I give them a diagnosis. Maybe it will do them harm. Are there any cons to giving people diagnoses or assessing them? Yes, uh, there are some people that do feel like that. You know, at the end of the day, as we touched on already, there's kind of that two sides of the the coin. There's yeah. the people that are pro-diagnosis and then the people that have a stigma associated with it. And, you know, even thinking about who I've been working with recently, there is one parent who is really anti-assessment because they don't want to receive a diagnosis for their child because of their own experiences when they were younger and they received a diagnosis and felt like uh, it impacted them negatively because they were categorized in a certain way. So that's you know, that parent's experience. And I want to validate that. And I think for them, it'll be a journey and it may lead to assessment at some point or it might not. Uh, And that's okay too. You know, we're still going to support the young person and we can support them as if they had a diagnosis, you know, because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to understand what their strengths and challenges are so that we can work with them, regardless of whether we give them a label or not. So I think, you know, there are people that for whatever reason can feel like that. If I was to look back on most of my clients and my experiences in different settings, I would say, you know, it's probably 90% that are happy with a diagnosis are either coming looking for one or throughout conversations, you kind of take them along on that journey and help them to understand and they get to a point where it can be really validating and remove some of the confusion that they were probably experiencing before they came to you. It's a really good point that some people and parents even might have had negative experiences. I'm just thinking dyslexia, for instance. I remember mm. um, I've got people in my life who have a diagnosis of dyslexia. And a few decades ago, if a child received that diagnosis, they were pretty much labelled as stupid. And so yeah. that would be carried around with them for the whole educational lives. And so I can see the hesitance of some people around getting a diagnosis, primarily due to stigma and what that means to them. Um, I really hope that it's changed nowadays because what I see as the purpose of diagnosis, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I see it as a way to help the person understand their experiences, but also help us as clinicians lead them to evidence-based treatment and supports. Absolutely. And, you know, some conditions or diagnoses or labels or whatever we want to call them need some support and intervention. Mm. And others actually we don't necessarily need to do anything, yeah. but it's a way of understanding and, okay, well, maybe we communicate this way or you know that, you know, at a certain point, if we're thinking about social situations, maybe you go to a few and then that your cup's full and you kind of need to leave that. And having a diagnosis can help support that for that young person. We're focusing a lot on young people because you work in school and this is your area and it's probably a lot of your training, is that right? Like you've done a lot of your placements working with young people and assessing them? Yeah, I would say so. I think, you know, looking back during my training, even deciding which master's program to do, I knew I wanted to work with children and adolescents. Uh, So yes, most of my experiences in terms of placement and then all of my work in different settings has been with children and young people. The only adults I typically work with are parents and it's about their child or young person. 
the reason I asked that was because I think the next thing I want to go to is how would I assess a person in front of me who comes to me requesting an assessment? And I just want to put this question to you, Nicole. So let's say uh, you receive a referral in your inbox and it says, hi, Nicole, I'm a 40-year-old person and I am seeking a diagnosis for paranoid schizophrenia so I can use it in my court appearance next week. Can you please assess me? Uh, What would be your response to this? Uh, Well, that one I would say is outside my competency and I would be referring (laughs) to someone else. Um, So I guess that touches on the importance of working within our competency. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. So it's like almost the first question that we need to ask ourselves. It sounds like, please correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. It sounds like the first question we need to ask ourselves is, is this in within my scope of competence? Like, can I actually assess this person? Yeah. So one, what are they asking? Yes. You know, what information are they giving you that, because there are other, I guess there are situations where people have Googled or someone's mentioned something to them or they're wanting funding or, you know, there's some kind of reason. So we're asking ourselves, what are they asking for? Am I competent to deliver it? Have they given us any information to indicate that this actually might be relevant or useful? Or is there evidence that this could be worth assessing? Because we don't need to just assess everyone for everything. And the first stage of assessment is gathering that information. And then from a time perspective, you know, the example that you gave, not many psychologists would be able to do an assessment in a week or two. Um, so do I have time to, to do this? Do I have capacity? Do I have access to the assessment tools? Do I have the supervision? You know, there's lots of things that you need to be considering. Like I just heard you rattle off like 15 questions there. And I'm thinking for an early career psychologist, what would be going through my head would be like, crap, 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 crap. And I'd just be like, <laughs> oh my gosh, how do I actually deal with this? And that's even before you get to the assessment. So I'm assuming that maybe a recommendation for listeners would be if you're unsure about whether you can take on a referral to then seek external help. So go I don't want to say, my urge was to say, go cry to your supervisor, but be a bit more composed. <laughs> ask go, your supervisor some questions. Yeah, ask your supervisor some questions. Absolutely. And I guess it depends on where people are working. But, you know, if they were working in a private practice, there's generally some systems and things set up yes. to support that process. So it might be that the practice is known for working with different clients, but there would also be a, a system in how does assessment work. So it might be that the receptionist does an intake and then um, or there's allocates it to a psychologist who does an intake session. Then we gather some information from other people involved, whether that's the client themselves, their family, schools, those types of things. And then we kind of go through that process of information gathering and assessment. So even, you know, my role in a school, I'm the only psychologist here most of the time assessments and referrals and things come straight to me but as soon as something comes in I don't then book a time to meet with the student tomorrow you know it's about following my system and my process around well how do I formulate this what's my hypothesis what information do I need how do I go about that Maybe we can, could we frame this around ADHD? Just because I know yeah, that a sure. lot of people do seek ADHD diagnoses. Like they, they literally come and they were like, I want an ADHD diagnosis. So I'm just curious, let's say that somebody has come into your inbox and it's like, okay, I would like an assessment for ADHD. I'm, I'm thinking I meet these criteria and I'd like a diagnosis. 
How do we manage those expectations? Because the purpose of assessment is not to necessarily confirm what the person thinks, it's to do an assessment and see what's happening here. And it could be very well that it's not ADHD, it's something else. So how do you manage that with clients? Yeah, I think if anyone comes to you wanting something, that's probably one of the first conversations that you would have with them around, okay, so you came here and you know, you're wanting an assessment for ADHD and you think that that's something that might understand, you know, help us to understand you or explain some of your experiences. You talk to them to try and gather some information about why and then let them know what the process is so that, you know, yes, ADHD is relevant and it's becoming a bit more popular lately. And for good reason, you know, it's challenging and debilitating for lots of people, but not everyone that has some attention difficulties meets a diagnosis of ADHD. So kind of talking to them about what the criteria is, how we might gather that information that, you know, challenges need to be present from a young age, that there's lots of steps involved. And then going through that process that, yes, if we were to do an assessment, it might come out as having ADHD, it might come out as having something else because actually there's a lot of overlap or it might come out with just some strengths and challenges for you, but not a diagnosis. Um, so always being upfront with people. So letting them know about the possibilities upfront is very important. Yeah, I think so. And even on the other hand, you know, I've had therapy clients come to me before for therapy around something. And very early on, I've thought, oh, there might be something here, whether it's ADHD or autism or learning difficulties. And I think it's really important to kind of name that too. And that conversation can be difficult because they haven't come for assessment. But ethically, if we didn't name it up and then in four years time, they saw someone else and, you know, that person was to say, oh, have you ever, has anyone ever mentioned this before? They'd be like, oh no. And I saw that psychologist, Nicole, and she didn't mention anything. So she must be terrible. Or, you know, so I always think it's important to kind of name what, what I'm seeing or my observations or my thoughts or, you know, what my hypotheses are and naming it in that really frank way that, you know, actually some of what you're saying or describing makes me think a little bit about this. I don't know if you've heard anything about that. I'm not saying that you have that diagnosis, but it might be something that we could look at a bit further in future to see if that's a way of understanding you. With assessment, my understanding is that you go through what's called a differential diagnostic process. So you've got several hypotheses about what this could be after you assess the presentation. And with ADHD, it could be an anxiety disorder. It could be depression. Uh, It could be an adjustment disorder. It could be trauma. And so is it appropriate to share the client at that stage the other diagnoses you're considering? I think it's probably more of a case-by-case basis. You don't want it to be too clinical. You don't want the client to come in and then you to get, as you said, get out your DSM and kind of sit them down and say, well, these are the other things that we need to consider and let's write out a table and we'll tick one box at a time. Yeah. Particularly if they haven't mentioned anything about depression or something like that, that could be quite uncomfortable for that person. Um, But I think as we go, it's probably more of a casual conversation around, you know, there are lots of things that can look a bit like ADHD. So part of the assessment for us will be making sure that we're getting the best explanation for you. And if as we're gathering information, there's evidence of something else coming to light, then I'll talk to you about that as we go. Can you just speak to this? I'm really curious because I think it's unique to young people, but young people are maturing and they've got lots of changes. They've got hormones, physiological changes, brain changes. Their brains aren't even fully developed yet. There's stuff going on there. 
How do you how do you rule out the normal maturational changes with young people from a possible, I guess, diagnoses that might be happening? I feel like that would be a minefield for assessment in young people. Is that right? Yeah, it's tricky. And I think, you know, particularly for parents who don't necessarily see a lot of young people, so they might have experience with their child and only their child. And if it's their first child, they don't know what teenagehood is like. And you know, it's a whole can of worms. There's a lot going on there. So that can be tricky. Whereas one of the benefits of, let's say, working in a school is that you can very easily compare that young person to others the same age as them and kind of be like, well, actually, everyone's rolling around on the ground in prep. And that doesn't mean (laughs) that this person has ADHD. Or in secondary school, most people have moments where they're a bit moody or they're a bit reactive and we're all human. So I think you know, coming back to what's normal um, can be really useful. And then as we keep coming back to that information gathering stage. So, you know, it's really important for any diagnosis that some present or some symptoms have been present for a while. And in multiple settings, you know, most diagnosis in the DSM stipulate that. So gathering that information from teachers, parents, the young person themselves, and comparing all the information before you jump into a diagnosis can be really important. It sounds like you're such a detective, Nicole, because it's I like, like yeah. yeah, is that how you think I was of actually, yourself? I think so. And I was actually talking to um, some friends the other day and I was like, oh, if I wasn't a psychologist, I reckon I would love to be a detective. <laughs> It'd be so cool. Yeah, just like solving crimes and stuff. They kind of joked and said that I wouldn't be very good with the blood and gore, but I don't know. I think I'd be all right. I reckon you'd be really cool. And just (laughs) because as you were saying that, it's like, you know how we need it over across multiple settings. It's that reminds me most of being a detective because it's like if a child is, for example, having tantrums at school, but they're not having it at home, it's like you put your detective hat on. You're like, why? Why? Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like when I'm doing an assessment, I would ask myself a why question, you know, every 10 minutes. Why is this happening? What does that mean? What, what else could that be? What does it look like? And so with conducting assessments, I guess, let's just focus on ADHD in young people. How do you actually select your instruments? So ADHD has come up as a diagnosis over the past few years, and there are so many instruments. How do you actually get your head around it as an educational and developmental psychologist? Yeah, it's a lot. Not the ones on TikTok. I've had quite a few (laughs) young people come to me lately saying that I've watched some TikTok video and it told me to look at this dot and I had to look away. So that means I have ADHD. (laughs) Um, Not valid. Uh, I think it's really important to go back to the evidence, you know, what is valid, what's reliable. And we know that there's some assessment tools that are and some that aren't. So first and foremost, that keeping up to date with new things that are coming out is important. So whether it's doing some professional development in assessment or in new assessments, talking uh, in peer supervision with your individual supervisor, all of those types of things can be useful. And then I guess it's just what do you have access to? And when I talk to my supervisees and even when I'm doing assessment, the data that comes from the assessment itself is useful and really interesting. But I think more than the data is the observations. So being able to observe the child or the adult or the young person in different settings, being able to pick up on their mannerisms, their actions, you know, if it was a cognitive assessment and they were kind of trying to solve a puzzle, the actual answer of whether they solved the puzzle is useful, but actually how they did that can be just as useful. You know, did they do trial and error? 
did they get it right, but they just took too long? Were they fidgeting in their chair? You know, all of that information um, we can add to our pile and then put our detective hat on and kind of think about what does that all mean? So integrating this information is a key part of assessing. Absolutely. Yeah. It sounds so difficult, Nicole, as you're talking about it, I'm like, wow, so they have to make sure they have the latest assessments and then also balance that with what they have access to because we have an ethical obligation to not use assessments from like the 70s, you know, 50 years ago, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the access is important because we don't all have access to everything. Mm. And so even, you know, there's some online kind of questionnaires that you can get But knowing that sometimes either because you don't have access or it's a bit of a complicated case or you're not sure, I do it and other people I'm sure do it as well, that you might refer out to someone else for a second opinion or to get more assessment because they have access to something that you don't and you think that that would be useful in helping to understand this young person. Even in the selection of instruments, you have to make sure that it's, for example, culturally sensitive to the person in front of you or can meet their cognitive capacity. Like if you suspect an intellectual disability, you'd then have to select an instrument that is sensitive to that and appropriate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting hearing you talk about it because it does sound complicated, but in the day-to-day, it's kind of less complicated. (laughs) You tend to have, you know, six or seven things that you have access to that you use quite readily, that's your assessment bank. And if someone comes to you that's outside of that, or that you think actually this isn't from a language perspective or an intellectual perspective or an age perspective, this isn't valid for this person, then I would probably be looking to refer them to someone else. So you don't have to be the jack of all trades and be able to assess or fit something to everyone. It's kind of once you've developed your toolkit, obviously you're keeping yourself up to date with research and updating it as you need, but you don't have to have everything. A, that's a lot to be on top of and financially and all of those things. I really love that. And I think that's really important for our listeners to hear that you don't have to be a jack of all trades. And in fact, it can be, it sounds like really, really stressful and probably financially stressful to actually be that. Absolutely. You know, even if we were just to take cognitive assessments, you know, the two main, uh, the Weschler and the Woodcock-Johnson, there are others out there too, but not many psychologists use both the Weschler and the Woodcock-Johnson because why Why would you or, you know, even just trying to remember to be across different things and report writing and using different language when administrating it can be a bit complicated. So I think you kind of pick a lane and then stick to it. Yeah, you sound really comfortable with knowing this is what I do, this is what I don't. Yeah, I think so. And comfortable having that conversation with people. So, you know, if they were coming to you wanting a specific assessment that they'd seen online, you know, being able to say, actually, that's not something that I'm able to do or willing to do. This is what I can offer you. Or let's work out a way that we can try and find someone who can give you that. It's interesting though, because for the most part, our clients, I don't think know what assessment is. Yeah, I agree. You know, they don't know what they're coming for. They don't know if you're going to get them to do a questionnaire or puzzles or they have no idea. And yeah, they see the dot on TikTok and they're like, this yeah, is absolutely. the dot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I had a young person, a child once who was probably five or six and he came in and he was quite distraught. And I was like, oh, you know, what's going on? And I had a conversation with his mom and then I might've asked him and his mum had told him that, He was coming to see me so I could work out how his brain worked. And in his mind, he thought I was going to chop open his head and look at his brain. Oh, no. 
So, you know, he was quite oh, upset. Poor thing, and, of course. Yeah. And I was like, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. We're <laughs> going to have some fun. You know, you get to play on this iPad. Oh, my God, poor thing. He thinks you've got to get out a knife and, like, cut off his Absolutely. brain. And, she, and he's like, she's just buttering me up with the, with yeah, the games yeah, yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. So it's really interesting what people's idea of assessment is, particularly if they have only ever seen a doctor before. A doctor might take your blood. I'm not going to take your blood. Yeah, she she wants to know how I solve this puzzle. What a weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? That was fun. That yeah. wasn't an assessment. Yeah, I've often had that feedback from clients who I've done assessments with. They're like, no, I'm enjoying this. And I'm like, oh, we might need to take a break from mental fatigue. And they're like, no. Yeah, that, this is good, particularly with, you know, children again and working in a school. I might take them out of a maths test and they get to come hang out with me, play with a fidget toy, do some puzzles, probably get a lolly. Like, that's good. <laughs> I'm just imagining the other kids being like, Miss, I have ADHD too. Please assess yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Contagion. Absolutely. <laughs> um, oh, I can't remember where we were up to back there, um, but I think we were talking about selection of instruments. And I guess like, um, I mean, just to be realistic about the training in these instruments, like when I was going through uni and I did training in the waist and the whisk, it was really rigorous. Like what we had to do for one assessment was I had to train with a peer. They had to watch me do it. They had to mark me for every aspect of every subtest as to whether I did it correctly. And this would be quite specific. So for example, for the uh, memory component, it would be, did she leave a second between yeah. each, each digit? Uh, was she like chunking them? So it's very specific. And then I had to watch her and then also rate her and then we'd get feedback overall and would have to practice. Like, does that reflect what your experience is with learning assessment instruments? Absolutely. I remember the same at uni and then getting to the point, I think I did one on my housemate at the time and then sat down with one of the lecturers and had to administer a few assessment subtests with her and I was so scared that I was going to say all the right things and that's funny you mentioned the working memory one because I vividly remember doing that subtest and looking at the clock and kind of counting <laughs> yeah. the seconds to the point that I probably left too long between them even with supervisees now you know it is a lot to think of but the more you do it the easier it gets so you know the phrases that you use now are second nature to me you know when you have to do a query and a cognitive assessment I know the three phrases that I can I can use and they come naturally. And by having some of those skills as second nature, it means that you have capacity to be doing lots of those other observations that I talked about. So I know when I've worked with early career psychs as well, and I've suggested to them that, you know, the behavioral observations are really important and make sure you're taking that down. They kind of feel like, oh my God, I have to do all of these things and I have to score this assessment and I have to take it down. Whereas when I'm doing an assessment now, I'm often keeping notes, I'm scoring the subtest as I go. I can do lots of different things at once because some of those skills are quite automatic. That's amazing. Yeah, like all things that comes with practice. Yeah, that practice is really important to be realistic. Like you're not going to pick this up within a week. So for example, yeah. listeners, if your workplace is like, I need you to learn the whisk within a week. No, you're not going to do that. Absolutely. And you don't have to you know, the person that you're assessing probably has never done it before. So they don't know what they're in for. They don't care if you make a mistake or you, you know, take your time when you're reading what you have to say, but also using the things to your advantage. So I guess for the listeners that, you know, if you're looking at a whisk or a Wyatt, lots of the technology these days has practice tests set up. So you can be working through them, work through them with a peer, work through them with a colleague and practice until you feel comfortable. Write yourself some notes, put sticky notes where you need to, you know, do all of those things to help you. 
and then you'll find that the second or the third time you do it, actually, you don't need as many sticky notes and go through it that way. Yeah, I love the technology-based assessments. I did a WACE um, using the Pearson iPads. Yeah. And- it was a pain in the ass to set up. It's one of the main reasons I don't do assessments because I don't want to deal with Pearson. I think that's really sad, but like surely they're a thorn in your side as well. Oh, I feel like I've got it set up now and it kind of works. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very envious. Yeah. <laughs> but that's fantastic. But listeners, if you need some assistance, then make sure you reach out to your supervisors. I think Nicole mentioned that she's got some supervision spaces as well. Yeah, absolutely. I've got a couple of free spaces. So if anyone is looking particularly at just some assessment supervision or needing someone to kind of help formulate a case or those types of things, I'm more than happy. Nicole, I just wanted to move on to giving feedback to clients and as maybe this is a separate thing, but writing the report as well. This is one of the things that puts me off assessment as well. It's writing the report. Like I like being a detective And I would love to be the person in the crime show walking around and being like, oh, there's a clue over there. But I hate writing it up. My goodness. But you you must enjoy that. Yeah, I do enjoy it. It can be a bit um, (laughs) it can be a bit burdensome sometimes if you've got three or four that are kind of due. And I think just the nature of um, my current work is that finding a block of time to sit and do some admin can be difficult without an interruption. But I'm quite happy to, yep, sit and write a report, have a coffee get in the zone. And again, I think once you've got practice, lots of those phrases become um, a bit more automatic. I oh, think that's there's, true. So you've probably got so, templates as well, right? Yeah, templates and there's a space. And anyway, I'll get off topic, but I think there's a space for what kind of technology we can be using to support psychologists with report writing because it is laborious and it's time consuming, but it's useful for the client. Yeah, I think one of the issues that early careers face with reports and assessment is that they're going to spend more time on writing up a report than say an experienced psychologist like yourself. Mm -hmm. So they might spend 10 hours, but then the practice will say to them, look, reasonably, we can't charge them 10 hours for this just because you're inexperienced. We need to charge them for two hours. Uh, Can you just speak to that for a bit? Yeah, that's completely right. And it's unfair and it's hard. And it's something that I think most of us have experienced. And I guess you don't get the experience by not doing it. So you need to practice if that's an area that you're passionate about. But also I'd be asking, you know, your supervisor or the clinic, or if you're thinking about going to work in different clinics, what resources do they have to support you? So Uh, while it might be that they don't pay for all of that time, do they have a template of recommendation banks that you can use? Do they have report templates? Um, Will your supervisor check them? You know, all of those types of questions that can help early career psychs with their report writing. I think that's really important. Do you have the resources or what resources do you have? And you want to be making sure, like, do they have these templates? Do they have textbook chapters available to you? Because I remember writing these reports in uni and it took me hours and hours to really find these chapters, to look at them, to find all these resources. And so a practice could save you a lot of time and heartache uh, by providing you with the support that's needed to at least not spend 20 billion hours on a report. Absolutely. Even just, you know, giving you some sample reports. What's the expectation in this practice? You know, how do you like them to be written? Because there's no... Australian standards in report writing. Every person does them differently. So what does this clinic like or is there scope for you to develop your own? But then how do I do that when I've never seen a report before? So I think having some of those templates and things is really key. I agree. 
And moving on to giving clients feedback, what's a what's a feedback session like for you with clients? Like, are they generally happy? Is it hard? Is it difficult to explain? What's it like for you? I think for the most part, they're good. There's definitely a few that you go into still and you're kind of bracing yourself or thinking, I don't know how this is going to go. But my rule of thumb is to wherever possible, try and have no surprises. So you know, I think that's in a feedback session or a meeting or, you know, whatever it is, I don't want to just drop a bombshell and then kind of leave. So if I was giving a diagnosis of let's say ADHD, I would have been talking about that leading up to it so that, you know, we're doing the assessment, this is what we're looking for. And then during the assessment, you know, if I was to do a cognitive assessment with a young person, I show them the graph on the iPad of the, you know, whisk and kind of say that this is what your brain was really good at. And some of these things were, it, it found a bit more difficult. And that might mean that, you know, when mum asks you to go upstairs and get six things, you can only remember to do two of them or you get distracted or whatever it is. So, you know, talking about it on the way there and with families and parents as well, so that there aren't too many surprises in the feedback session, I think is really important. You never want to get into a session where, you know, you're giving a diagnosis and the family or the client or whoever it is didn't even know that that was an option. And then so you might start the feedback session by kind of saying, you know, we were doing an assessment for ADHD and we also talked about how ADHD can sometimes look like poor working memory or anxiety or sometimes people have some symptoms and not enough. So today we'll be talking through the report and the assessment that we did that came out of that. And so then you might go through it. You might ask them, you know, often I might say, do you have any questions or what are your thoughts? You know, what do you think the outcome is or what do you want the outcome to be? And then you can kind of frame your feedback session based on their own expectations. And then I typically talk through the report often as we're going. And there, if there is going to be a diagnosis, it comes up quite early on in the discussion that, you know, actually the results of all of this mean that you do have dyslexia or something like that. And I think particularly for perhaps some of the listeners, dropping that label might feel quite anxiety provoking. And, you know, I remember some of the first ones, I think I probably just word vomited out as autism. And then <laughs> and then I got calm and explained, well, what does this mean? And where yeah. to from here? Mm. And most, most people are there for the, well, what support can we have? Or what yeah. should we be doing? Or, you know, is there anything that we need to be considering or anything different that could happen? And, you know, most people want you to spend more time on the recommendation section of the report. Yeah, so they want to know, well, what does this mean for us and what supports do we need? What would you recommend? Absolutely. You know, is there anything different that we need to be doing? Uh, sometimes, you know, there's funding available or that you do need to go and see a different practitioner for more assessment or sometimes it's that actually this is a conversation to have with school or this is something practical for home. And I think that's where, you know, if you are writing a report, really tailoring those recommendations for that individual is key. Mm, yeah, not giving generic things that's like, well, what's the point of this assessment if you're not going to yeah. help us and yeah. with specific supports? Absolutely. And sometimes, you know, you can read some recommendations and think, oh, you know, I'm already doing that or that's, yeah, it is so generic. Um, so you really want it to be tailored. Nicole, a question that comes up for me uh, is, so you work at a school and I'm aware that for different assessments, it's not recommended that psychologists continue with treatment. So I think for some forensic assessments, it's better for the psychologist to just be the assessor and then not continue treatment. Um, I think because it's a conflict of interest or maybe it's a dual relationship. 
And I'm just wondering how that works for you in schools, because I imagine you might see a young person, here's the diagnosis of ADHD, and then they might come back to you for counselling or how do you deal with that? Yeah, and I think it's A, working in schools, but also I work in a relatively regional area. So the nature of dual relationships exist anyway. And unfortunately, and you know, that's probably quite universal at the moment that they're it's hard to get access to psychologists in the community. So often it's kind of like you've done some assessment and if there is something that you feel like needs to be worked on through a counselling kind of lens, is it ethical to say, but I can't do it and you have to wait six months for someone else. Mm. Um, So I think having that conversation with the person using a detective hat, all of those things can be important. Most of the time I probably do it. Sometimes it's just assessment and actually then it's about supporting teachers or the parents and you've given them the info and that's all they need. Sometimes there might be some therapy. Like, yeah, it comes back to the the person's role because even the nature of my work in a school is that I can't see all students long-term. So if it looked like it was going to be some long-term work, I would be looking to refer out and I might do one or two sessions while they're waiting. Mm. Um, yeah, so I can't give a clear answer on that. No, it sounds very tricky. And I mean, that's how it is with all ethical things, particularly with dual relationships. They're not prohibited. You have to weigh up what is in the best interests of the client and what is my role and boundaries. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think trying to think back to some of the, I, I would say most of the people I assess don't go on to need additional work um, or from me. It's more, well, how do we support their environment yeah. to best support them? Or how do we work with their teachers or their parents to best support them? Because actually, as we go, as we mentioned at the start, there's nothing wrong with this person. They're not broken, but we need to support the system around them. So, Nicole, I think we're coming towards the end. But one thing I wanted to ask you was, is there something that you think that younger Nicole, when you think back to your early career stages, would have benefited from knowing that current Nicole knows now about diagnosis or assessment? Uh, Don't be afraid to have hard conversations, I think would be important. The first few assessments and diagnosis I gave, I remember feeling very scared and uncomfortable about. But the more you have those conversations, the easier they get. And knowing that so many people actually find a diagnosis validating and you can give that feedback in a really nice and calm way can be important. What else? Getting experience. So you have to practice to gain the experience obviously as we've been talking some of the things I've mentioned probably to the listener sound like oh my god how you know how would you get from where I am to where she is and it just takes a little bit of time and a little bit of practice and you'll get there asking for help you know we already touched on being able to have some boundaries and say no if you don't feel like you're interested or it's outside of your competency or you're not comfortable or you don't know. Thank you Nicole I think those things are really important for early career psychologists to know, particularly the having difficult conversations, don't be afraid, lean in, but as well, get practical experience. I think you mentioned this off air to me that you need practical experience so you know how different presentations present. So it's like, if you're unsure about what's normal, if you have that clinical experience working with clients, you can actually be like, okay, this is generally how it presents. Yeah, I would say so. And if you we're starting out and you were thinking about maybe 
oh, assessment interests me or that sounds interesting. Getting that experience with different presentations is useful. So go and work with people with anxiety or dyslexia or go into schools or work with clients with autism. You know, all of those things can help you to understand and no two people are the same and no two diagnoses are the same and all of those factors, but actually it can give you a little bit more information about, ah, this is what it can look like in the real world because it looks very different to how it reads in the DSM table. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, I always say that to clients when I think of ADHD criteria, that the diagnostic criteria was written with like little boys who throw chairs in mind. Um, so yeah, it can look very different in, for example, adult women. Um, yes. And yeah, I think that's really important. So thank you for raising that, Nicole. Nicole, is there anything else that we haven't given a voice to today that you think would be really important for listeners to know? I don't think so. I think if anything, you know, I'd love them to feel a little bit excited about assessment and diagnosis and being a detective in the psychology space and knowing that, you know, they can do it. Yeah. No, I think I think you guys do a really cool job. I actually, I did think of becoming an ed dev psych myself, but then once I got the experience in writing reports, I was like, I hate this. I hate this so much. <laughs> so like <laughs> if I could get somebody, if I could be the detective and then like palm off my reports to somebody else, I would totally do it. But I realized that that's yeah. a bulk of your work. Yeah, it's a bit. And I'm lucky in the sense, you know, at the moment I'd say assessment probably takes up 30% of my role. And of that, you know, some of it's the one-on-one assessment and the information gathering, and then there's a section of report writing and I don't hate it. So it's not burdensome for me. I think that's Um, great. Yeah. But I've also worked with psychs before that have written most of their reports through, you know, voice to text because that works for them and they'll dictate things. And you know, there's so much technology and things. So how do we use that to our advantage? Okay. Listeners, don't be put off by me then. It sounds like there is value to be found and that it's really enjoyable for you and quite a rewarding and enriching area. Absolutely. But yeah, know what you like and work work to that. Yeah. It's not for everyone. Thank you so much, Nicole, for coming on and speaking with us about diagnosis and assessment and really unpacking this topic. I think it's really valuable for our listeners. So we're very grateful. No problem. It's been nice being here. Great. Well, thank you so much, listeners, for listening and catch you next time. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career psychologists. If there's someone you know who might love this show, let them know about it. It's the best way to get the podcast into new listeners' ears and I'd be so grateful for it. Thanks for listening. Have a good one and see you next time.